Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, what's next for the Phoenix Open after golf fans got too crazy last week in Scottsdale? And we meet a TikToker who makes the recipes that people have etched on their gravestones. But first, lawmakers at the state capitol advanced a bill yesterday that would create a new way for rural communities to regulate groundwater. The bill comes as the debate over who gets to regulate often dwindling groundwater supplies heats up. This is the latest effort by Republican lawmakers to assert local control and they say protect agricultural interests. Our own Cameron Sanchez with KJZZ's politics desk has been covering it all and joins me now with more. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. All right. So this all has to do with who controls groundwater in rural parts of the state, where we are often seeing the water underground that people use for their wells dwindling, and Mm -hmm. it's largely used by agriculture. So tell us, first of all, what the groundwater situation looks like in many parts of the rural parts of the state. Not great. So we've got these groundwater basins uh, sprinkled throughout Arizona. And for a lot of people, that's their life. I mean, that's how they survive is with groundwater pumping. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the groundwater supply is dwindling a lot faster than the aquifers are being recharged. So it's not a good situation. And everyone does sort of agree that we need a better solution than we have now. Okay. So one of the ways to regulate groundwater is what's called an active management area. Tell us how that works. Who controls them? Well, it's a very complicated process, (laughs) but I'll try to stick to to a short explanation. Basically, It's a designated area where groundwater is protected and pumping is regulated. Mm -hmm. And currently, Arizona has six of those active management areas. Okay. And people, not everybody's for these, right? Like who is against the idea of creating more active management areas and, and the kind of state control that comes with them? Well, no one says they're perfect. But right now, there are Republican lawmakers in the state legislature who are actively saying we don't want to create more active management areas because it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And for rural Arizona, where we're considering, you know, implementing new solutions, an active management area isn't going to work. It doesn't give local control and it disproportionately harms agriculture. Hmm. Okay. So with this bill, Republicans like Sinekur are are kind of want to create a, a local way to regulate groundwater that's similar fr- to an active management area, but not quite the same, right? What does this look like? Mm-hmm. I think she would say it's very different, but it is another area that is you know, comprised of groundwater basins that's designed to protect groundwater. So in that way, it is quite similar. But the devil's in the details with this water policy. And it's unfortunately this year, I think, a very partisan issue. And in the past, it's been very bipartisan. But at the moment, there's not a lot of negotiation, at least not friendly negotiation Mm. going on. So her proposal, um, critics say, is way too complicated, makes it way too hard to create one of these alternative basin management areas and wouldn't really be implemented. But it's designed to protect the interests of rural Arizonans in particular by having local councils, elected councils, mm-hmm. represent and manage their own basins. Okay. Okay. Would it disproportionately affect agriculture in the same way or how, how would it address agricultural interests? Agriculture would potentially take small cut, but it would be somewhat protected. So the cuts are designed to sort of be across the board. 
Um, Democrats say that that's really just a giveaway to agriculture and mines and it's good for their lobby but would harm everyone else. So, you know, push and pull. Okay. This is pretty similar, I think, to a proposal that the Governor's Committee on Water came out with not too long ago, right? It is. uh, I think, again, I don't think Senator Kerr would (laughs) describe it as similar because she's very much at odds with the governor right now and they do not support one another's proposals. But Mm -hmm. the governor had a policy council that Kerr actually quit, walked off of, um, saying that it didn't represent rural Arizona enough. But their recommendations, again, were similar. It was like AMAs are not perfect. We need to have an alternative approach and there does need to be more local control. And that's something that the governor said in her state of the state speech. She mentioned rural control. Mm -hmm. So this might sound like to most people that they generally agree. But what's the difference here? Where are the disagreements? (laughs) Well, there are a few things like having the council of you know, local stakeholders be appointed or having them be elected and how easy it is to create one of these management areas. If there are too many, you know, hoops to jump through, too many steps to take, then, you know, maybe it won't actually happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, things about how much your groundwater would be regulated and people with existing rights, how much they would get to keep those rights. Okay. All right. One of the places that is sort of at the center of this right now is Gila Bend. There's a proposal to create an active management area there, right? Um, And it's been met with pretty fierce opposition. Talk about what that case sort of says about the future of groundwater. Yes, Gila Bend is definitely a very interesting case study, and this is all happening right now. Uh, The Department of Water Resources which is a state agency, just recently started the process of considering creating an AMA in Gila Bend, which absolutely um, (laughs) blew up at, you know, the Capitol with Mm. Republicans. They say it's a betrayal by the governor, that she's a liar, that this is her initiating the process, even though she agreed to work to make changes that are not AMAs. Um, I think, you know, whether or not that's the case, there's only one option right now to regulate, and that's AMAs. Mm-hmm. And the department hasn't taken any steps to actually create one yet. They have only had one very preliminary meeting, so it very much remains to be seen. I think, you know, the Gila Bend agricultural community came out and said, we don't want to be regulated, and that's understandable, but I, you know, in the end, they might have to be. And this is because the groundwater there is is really dwindling, right? It's one of the sharpest areas of decline in the whole state, yes. Wow. So what does that case say about sort of what these debates might look like going forward? It's very interesting. I mean, Gila Bend, it looks like, is going to be regulated. But is it going to be an active management area that we have now? Some sort of form of scenic hers SB1221 with these alternative basin management areas or something else, something that the governor would like that would not be an AMA, but also wouldn't be one of those proposals. Okay. We'll just have to wait and see. We will have to wait and see. Lots of negotiations, I'm sure, to come on that. That is KJZZ's Cameron Sanchez with our politics desk filling us in on all things groundwater. Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you. Last year, President Biden designated nearly one million acres around the Grand Canyon a national monument. But now the top legislative Republicans in the state are suing over it, calling it an unlawful land grab. House Speaker Ben Toma and Senate President Warren Peterson's arguments center around the language in the Antiquities Act. But much of this debate has to do with uranium mining in the area, which will be off limits within the National Monument. Speaker Toma is on the line now to talk more about it. Good morning, Mr. Speaker. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Okay, so you are calling this in this lawsuit a land grab. Tell us first why. Well, if you look at the actual Antiquities Act, uh, it states that the president may reserve parcels of land as part of the National Monument, as you correctly said, but the limits of those parcels shall be confined to the smallest area compatible with the, uh, quote, proper care and management of the objects to be to be protected. So when you look at the, the Biden administration designation of nearly a million acres at this point uh, as a national ornament, it, it's clearly an overextension of that uh, of that antiquity and act. Because mm. again, the act was meant to protect a small specific um, areas of, of, of historical or maybe scientific value, not basically vast landscapes in, in, in northern Arizona. Interesting. Okay. Let's talk about uranium mining then. This this area is rich in uranium, and, and that has obviously some big implications for our energy. This will limit the amount of mining for uranium that could be done in that area. There is a new mine there that just started production that was grandfathered in, so there is uranium mining happening in that area. But what are your concerns about stopping this kind of production in the future? Well, I mean, to, to us, it seems like the designation serves political interests more than it does. And, um, it actually hinders practical land uses uh, at the end of the day. And so, yeah, economic production of, of, of working lands uh, for industries like mining, as you correctly pointed out, is a major issue here. Because once this is designated, then the president's administration may strictly limit the use and uh, and the development of land. So uranium is an important uh, asset. Uh, there are lots of other minerals uh, that that are that are important as well in mm-hmm. the area and and so we need access to it. And so I mean if you think about this from a different perspective, you know, the this act uh, if if this is allowed to stand, then every western state that has large percentages of federally controlled land within their borders uh, should be concerned that the president can simply designate it and uh, with just a designation have complete control over how they develop their their, their natural resources in the near future. Mm. You also have concerns that you outline in the lawsuit here about, about the financial impact on the state? Sure. I mean, not the economic production, as I said, of, 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 of these lands don't only affect the state. It also affects local, uh, the area, the, the development of the area. And um, and I think for me that's that's a very important uh, area because you're, we're protecting these the, the these areas uh, from from the federal government's vast overreach. When the president came to Arizona to sign the proclamation designating this monument, he talked about how it was about protecting thousands of sacred and cultural sites, which many tribes in the area have wanted to protect for some time. I wonder what your conversations have been like with tribal members and tribes in this area. Are, 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 have you had those conversations, and, and what do they say? Well, I can't speak to the, uh, to, to the specific uh, requirements or, or, or you know, the, the talking points, if you will, of the tribes themselves. But I, what I can say is, as I've said before, the, the reality of it is any, all, all Western states, and this really only affects Western states uh, because of the fact that we have such large percentage of federal lands, um, if if the federal government wants to do something specific to, uh, say, creating a new you know new national park or something like that, where mm-hmm. it's a vast amount of land, then there should be a process for that. But it can't be just 
the, the administration itself deciding this unilaterally without the input of, of, of a local state government. Um, and that's really the problem. And I, and I understand everybody's got a different perspective on this. At the end of the day, um, our, our partners among the, the, the Native American tribes also have their perspective on this. But, you know, they have th- their areas. Uh, we respect the reservations. We respect uh, their national sovereignty when it comes to, to their lands. Uh, this is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a large, um, large areas that really are within the borders of the state and, uh, and a large overreach by the administration. Hmm. I want to ask one more question on that front. The Havasupai tribe in particular has fought against the opening of the new mine that's, that's already begun operating there, the Penyon Plain Mine. They say it will hurt their only water source that, that's an aquifer in the area. Are you concerned about groundwater in that area and the protections that it might lose? You know, we, we've had a, I think it was right before on your show that you had a conversation about groundwater. That's a different discussion, uh, which we can get into at some length, I'm sure. And, and it's a very complicated issue. Uh, what I can say, though, is the reality of it is if we don't uh, become energy independent and uh, and also mineral independent, then we're going to be dependent on, on getting these minerals uh, for our national security and uh, for our economy from other places, uh, most specifically China and places that are not our friends. So, uh, quite frankly, I, I understand the concern, but I, I respectfully disagree. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because when you're talking about uranium, it, it's sort of a balance between, you know, what happens on the land where these mines have to take place, but also a, going toward an independent and a green energy future, right? Well, sure. But again, whether we're talking about uranium or, or some of the other minerals that we have to uh, that we have to we, we need absolutely in order to function as an economy. Uh, it's important that we become as sufficient as possible. And not only that, but we also have redundancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if something were to happen uh, and we no longer have access to a source that we currently have access to, we have to have redundancy for national security reasons. And so, again, I understand that some may not like it, but at the end of the day, uh, there are ways to, and we, we have proven ways that we can do this in, in, a, in a reasonable way. We can, we can extract these minerals responsibly. We can protect groundwater. And uh, whatever those those requirements are, I'm happy to have that discussion. But uh, just a, a, a complete shutdown unilaterally, like I said before, with mm-hmm. with, with uh, you know the the administration just deciding this all on their own without any input really from from the state uh, and, and any approval from us as a legislature is is a massive overreach. We'll leave it there for now. House Speaker Ben Toma joining us to talk more about this. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye bye. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, the woman making a ghostly archive of gravestone recipes. But first, the Waste Management Phoenix Open took over Scottsdale last weekend. The annual tournament was marred by unseasonably wet and chilly weather and an unusually rowdy and unruly crowd. And that's saying something. The golf tournament is dubbed the People's Open, and it's known for being a little different than the rest of the golf circuit. It's 16 hole is billed as the most exciting hole on the PGA Tour, and it's famous for being rowdy, fun, and packed with partiers. But this year, things seem to have gone too far, with drunken fans becoming the headline and certainly the talk of social media. And now the head of the Thunderbirds, which runs the event, says changes are coming. Jack Hirsch is the assistant editor at Golf Magazine, and he joins us now to talk more about it all. Thanks for coming on, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So the Phoenix Open is supposed to be a little rowdy, right? Like it's kind of its thing. But tell us a little bit about what was different this year. Yeah, so this is the highest attended tournament of the year on the PGA Tour. To put it into perspective, uh, you know, some of the smaller venues, uh, I'll use an example because I'm in Philadelphia. So I'll use when when Marion had the U.S. Open uh, a couple years ago. That's a smaller venue. They'll have about 20 to uh, 40,000 spectators in a day. I think Marion was closer to 20,000 LACC last year for the U.S. Open, similar venue. Uh, TBC Scottsdale is built as a stadium course, so they can hold a lot more. They build these mounds for people to sit on and watch around the around the course. So they'll have the last time they they stopped reporting attendance figures, but the mm-hmm. last time they did, they had over seven hundred thousand people wow. for the entire week. So that and that includes about two hundred thousand on Saturday. Saturday is always. The biggest day a couple years ago, uh, there was uh, a hole in one on that that stadium hole par three, the yeah. 16th, and pretty much beer went everywhere <laughs> uh, when that happened. Uh, there was also also that year two players, uh, one made a putt and they both lifted up their shirts and, <laughs> and threw them and threw them away. That was uh, a big deal. With Joel Damon was one of the players he he kind of became famous for it and then was featured in the Netflix docuseries Full Swing mm. about that. Uh, so it's it's always a big deal, but it's never really, I don't think it's ever really been viewed as a problem. Players have certainly avoided it mm-hmm. because of that. There, You know, it has, it has gotten a pretty good feel because Scottsdale is where a lot of tour players uh, reside, like yeah. Max Homa, uh, John Rahm lived in Scotts, uh, lives in Scottsdale. And, um, so a lot of good players previously had been playing it. Last year, all of the best players in the world uh, played it because it was designated as, well, that year it was called designated events. Now it's called the signature event. So it had a $20 million purse. So it had the best field that it ever had. This year, it wasn't that. However, there were still great players in the field. Scotty Scheffler was in contention. Uh, but I, I, it just seems like too many people wanted to go despite mm. all of this rain and you know, the rain complicated things because those mounds that I talked about, you couldn't really sit on them. You would just slide down and become, an, uh, become a muddy mess. Yeah. Uh, they lost a significant number of grass, all of their grass parking spaces. And uh, actually, our, our, our one, my one colleague who was down there, Claire Rogers, our social media manager, to- told us that uh, it would normally take her on, a, on an average practice day or last year, it would take her about five minutes to walk from the, the practice uh, to the 16th hole uh, because of just how packed in it was on Saturday. Mm-hmm. She said it took her 45 minutes to make it through all the people. There were wow. people being trampled. There, there were um, fights breaking out uh, all over the place that you saw on social media. And it was just, it, 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 it certainly seemed like it had you know, crossed, uh, crossed the line. Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was all over social media for sure. So now the head of the group that runs this event says there are going to be some changes coming. Do we know what those might look like? How different this tournament might look next time around? No, not exactly yet. It, it seems like, it seems like, uh, Chance Cosby, the director of the Thunderbirds you mentioned, uh, he said that they met the, the Thunderbirds met uh, and the leadership of the tournament met on Saturday night for about five or six hours. 
Uh, and he was asked on Golf Channel whether those changes would include more security. And he said, and he basically said, we, we, we haven't made that decision yet. I'm sure uh, that would be likely more security. Um, and I, I think it's likely we'll see a reduction in ticket sales. I'd be mm-hmm. interested to know, like I said, they don't release the attendance numbers. I would be really interested to know what the final attendance number was on Saturday. Uh, watching the broadcast, they reported that already, uh, this was early in the broadcast, uh, that already 200,000 people had showed up on Saturday, wow. um, you know, sometime, you know, right around 12 o'clock. Uh, and I believe the gates were closed, uh, which had never happened before Right on Saturday. Gates were closed around 2 p.m. That's also when they stopped the sale of alcohol for right. the rest of the day. Right. That made a lot of headlines. So let me ask you in the last minute or so here, can they maintain a balance? Like, can the Phoenix Open keep being kind of a fun and rowdy event, but without this kind of chaos, you think, going forward? That's a great question because, and you know what, my uh, I just spoke to my father who also writes about, you know, the culture of golf. Um, and it, it's a really difficult line to walk because golf has this, this, um, this aura, if you will, of being this stuffy elitist game yeah. and the Phoenix open is everything that that's not. And that's why that's so great for the game. Me personally, I'm, uh, you know, it kind of hurts that, a, that the <laughs> masters is the golf tournament everybody knows about because it's the one that's probably the most stuffy and elitist, whereas <laughs> the Phoenix Open is completely the opposite. So I do think there is a way to find that good balance that keeps it as something that people want to go to and people view as something different and fun. Uh, but yeah, there obviously has to be changes. I, you know, I saw that ejections had doubled last year, um, arrests almost quadrupled or uh, almost tripled. Um, so, you know, from last year and, you know, last year was pretty rowdy. So it's, 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 it's got to change, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. We'll see what happens. That is Jack Hirsch, assistant editor at Golf Magazine, joining us to talk more about all that transpired at the Phoenix Open last week. Jack, thank you for coming on and taking the time. I appreciate it. Of course. Elon Musk recently announced his company Neuralink had implanted its device in a human brain for the first time. At its heart, the device aims to allow users to take actions only through their thoughts. Musk has touted the ability to control a phone or computer by just thinking about doing something on them. Our next guest says this is a very exciting technology and that it has a lot of potential. Bradley Greger is a professor in the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at ASU. He spoke with my co-host, Mark Brody, and they started with how this device relates to the work he's doing since he's kind of in the same space. Uh, Very much so. This um, this is work that I was involved with almost a decade ago, but using much simpler technology, technology that was in no way ready to go like into a hospital just routinely. Hmm. Um, And what Neuralink has done is done that refinement and really taken it to a level that will significantly impact the quality of life for patients. Do you think that it will ultimately be at a place where it can get FDA approval and be used at scale? Absolutely. It's certainly possible, and that's what they're doing right now. Um, What will come out of these trials will be the data they'll take to FDA to say, you know, to show we can do it safely, it really will perform as we expect and treat the the pathology we're trying to take care of. 
Um, and that will lead to hopefully then FDA approving it for probably at first a larger study. And then eventually it'll hopefully just become something a neurosurgeon can prescribe to a patient. Say, you know, somebody who has, uh, you know, ALS and is locked in, that this is an appropriate treatment and they just do it and it goes to insurance and it's all done. Is that the kind of application you mostly see somebody with a disease like ALS where they kind of have lost the ability to communicate and, and maybe lost control of their body somewhat? Absolutely. Um, at first, that's what it'll be. Um, I mean, we were talking about a neurosurgical procedure. This is not something you do just trivially or routinely. Yeah. Uh, well, it is done routinely, but in the hospital setting sure. for a medical application. Um, and there'll be, I think the, the first ones will be something like ALS or people who are paralyzed. I think the big one on the horizon, though, is honestly turning the process around a little bit, where we're not trying to get information out of the brain, but we're trying to get information into the brain to restore sensation. And the big one is blindness, hmm. is to restore vision. So we're now stimulating the brain. Um, and this same technology could be used in that realm as well. So not necessarily just, you know, we keep hearing Neuralink, you know, somebody can think something and it can be written or spoken or acted in some way. But you're saying other senses maybe can be activated as well with this technology? Absolutely. And we've known in my lab and other labs around the world and, and some other companies that that can be done um, in a limited way. I mean, we're not talking about restoring vision like, you know, people naturally enjoy, but it'd be uh, useful vision to help people navigate an environment and that sort of thing. And so we know we can do that, but being able to do it in a patient for 10 years with it all fully implanted, that's what Neuralink is solving and it's very challenging. So I would think that for somebody, for example, you mentioned somebody with ALS or someone who's paralyzed, this obviously could, if it works and, you know, the potential is reached, could have serious practical implications. What kind of psychological applications could it have as well for those patients who are able to maybe do things that they once had the ability to do but then lost? Well, no, this is a super important question. I guarantee you that people are thinking about this very carefully. Um, there's both just the psychological impact of that change, um, the restoration of vision, uh, the restoration of movement, the, the restoration of communication, that's going to have an impact, hopefully a very positive impact. Um, where this technology could go in the future, though, and I think has really intriguing possibilities, is the study uh, and understanding and potentially the treatment of more like cognitive level disorders, mm. um, things like Alzheimer's, um, things like you know memory disorders of any kind. Depression would be another huge one, very poorly understood, hard to study in the lab, but with this sort of device in a human could be directly approached and maybe understood better and then also hopefully even then treated maybe using the device. A lot to be learned and figured out there, though, before right. first, of course. Yeah. So I got to ask you about sort of the creep factor here in terms <laughs> of like implanting something into your brain. Like I would think for a lot of people, that's kind of a bridge too far. It, it, it's a big deal. Seriously, I do not. This is why I just don't see people lining up like trying to get the new eye vision thing there. I don't know what the, the goggles that Apple yeah. just released that everybody wants. Yeah. I just don't see that happening. Um, not in the near term. It's, you know, the potential to help somebody who has a real need is huge. If you're basically intact and your hands work and your eyes work, I just don't see the compelling need for that there. Um, on terms of just the fact that it's neurosurgery and it's an implanted medical device, there are many devices out this already. I mean, the classic one everyone probably knows about is the cardiac pacemaker. Mm -hmm. Very simple. Um, but that's, you know, just acting to help heart. 
um, we start talking about the brain. You're talking about influencing people's behaviors and thoughts. And that it's sort of, different somehow. It is different. Um, it's a little closer to home, I yeah. would say. Uh, but there are also predicate devices there that are shown to be very helpful. Um, the big ones there would be the cochlear implant, which restores hearing to deaf people. Right. Been done in probably, gosh, half a million people now, I'd guess. Uh, the other big device uh, that I am involved with a lot is the deep brain stimulator uh, that's used to treat Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. Um, and this device is dang near miraculous. People have severe Parkinson's disease, you know, can't move, can't walk, have terrible tremors. Turn the device on, they get up and go ride a bike. It's remarkable. Mm. Um, and those have been around for 30 years and probably, gosh, probably pushing several hundred thousand patients now too. Um, and there, you know, there is the potential for them to kind of go wrong and can cause some complications, but then you can tone it down and stuff. The way I like to think of this is it's like electrical pharmacology. It's just like a drug. I mean, we take drugs for depression all the time, quite effective, have some side effects. This is the same thing. It just we're using electricity rather than a molecule. Um, so to be careful for sure and be yeah. thoughtful, but nothing untoward that we haven't dealt with before. I guess the difference for some people mm. might be, though, that like you take medication for, for depression or for any ailment, it doesn't stay in your inside you forever. Mm. Like the, the Neuralink, in theory, that's in there. It is in there. It's a device. It's implanted. But just like the drug, you can turn it off. But I know I completely hear what you're saying. And this is to be done thoughtfully and carefully, um, lots of oversight. And I think, you know, as this, the results of this initial trial coming out, we'll start learning a lot more about it and get a lot better understanding about what's happening. So as these trials progress, I'm curious what you're going to be looking for. Like what oh. sorts of things are you interested to see in terms of success versus not or how applicable this might be or how useful it could be for some patients? Well, I'll tell you, the scientific community is going to be watching this very closely. And the big one here is really longevity. Okay. That this can be implanted in the brain and, you know, be fully implanted, wireless, you know, all that, but it needs to last decades. This, you know, this can't, you know, in my lab, I can do this sort of thing and it'll work for a couple of years, which is great. But you think somebody, you're asking somebody to undergo neurosurgery, very expensive to treat something. And if it starts just not being as effective in a couple of years, that's a lot of effort. And then think of the loss then too, for the poor patient, they right. get this restored vision and then two years, it's gone. That's that's not okay. That would have, I think, profound psychological consequences as well. It's just not working as it's supposed to. Um, but I'm hopeful because of the design of the technology, it, it could last decades. I'm, and that's what I'll be watching for. Oh, that is really interesting. All right. That is Bradley Greger, an associate professor in the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at ASU. Bradley, thanks so much for your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me show. It was a pleasure. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Last week, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's attempt to pass a major bipartisan immigration measure failed in Congress after Republicans turned against it, spurned on by former President Donald Trump. But this was not the first time an Arizona lawmaker has tried to do this. Think back to the early 2000s when the late Senator John McCain attempted bipartisan immigration reform with Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy. And then again in 2013 when he led the so-called Gang of Eight with former Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. In the end... Just like Cinema's bill last week, it all failed. And our next guest says even though the reality of immigration today has shifted significantly, the fact that it is politicized has not. Chuck Coughlin is the CEO of High Ground, 
and a longtime GOP consultant in the state. He worked for Senator McCain as well as Governor Jan Brewer when she signed the controversial SB 1070. I spoke with him more about the history of immigration reform attempts in Arizona politics and why Senator McCain had pushed for reform nearly two decades ago. Well, Arizona's biggest training partner is Mexico. We are the A-zone for all of these issues. I would argue that the Arizona electorate is the most mature electorate at digesting these problems and wanting solutions to these problems, which are not forthcoming. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen that throughout the history, but we've seen political leadership because political leaders from Arizona, from John McCain to to, uh, Jeff Flake to Kyle to delegation members – always were looking for opportunities to try and resolve this issue, to try and work its way because it was so important to the Arizona economy. And so the relative strength of the economic issue dictates that you have some kind of legalized customs enforcement issues going on to get trade and commerce, which, of course, includes workforce, includes people. It goes back to the the agricultural industry wanting to have people to be able to move in itinerant uh, labor forces that could come and go Mm -hmm. Um, and driven by the Yuma market largely. I mean, the you know, everybody knows iceberg lettuce. Yuma is the capital of the country for iceberg lettuce in the winter. And so you got to get that out of the ground. And so there was a, a massive push by the business community to begin to try and resolve these issues separate and apart from the humanitarian crisis that characterizes it today. Mm -hmm. And these are these bills and the attempts that people like John McCain and Jeff Flake made back in the day, like they also failed. Do you remember what happened at the time, like why those bills were never able to make it through as cinemas didn't last week? Yeah, I, I think it mostly was the same things. It was a deep politicization, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats as well. And so... It's really been a, uh, a freak show of politics, and my belief is that lack of understanding about the politics of the issue has consistently contributed to those efforts' failures. So back then, the idea was that the, the GOP needed to expand its base, right? Like you needed to appeal to Hispanic voters, this massively fast-growing population yeah. in our country. Is that still the case today? Does that conversation still exist? I'm not sure it is. And today's MAGA party, today's Republican Party, I don't think sees it that way. I think they see that there is a contingent of Hispanic voters who are with them. They Mm -hmm. they don't want to see increased migration. There's people with businesses, small businesses. This is a hangover from the Clinton, you know, free trade policy of abandoning American workforce and having jobs and everything go overseas and that working class part of the population not feeling like they had any political representation. And Trump found them. And Mm. Trump has given voice to those people who, hey, man, I'm here legally. I I did that. You know, I've created my own opportunity here. We don't need to give anything away. And I have my small business and I'm doing fine. That's a that's a legitimate argument that a lot of uh, Hispanic, older Hispanics make. So, you know, it's a really much more of a mosaic Hmm. of a political landscape than people really understand. Uh, You know, we can all intellectualize the policy points, but these are things that are represented emotionally within the electorate, which is what has now driven the debate in Mm -hmm. my mind. It's emotion. It's politics. It's not economic policy. It's not what's good for the state. There is very few people 
that are willing to stick their necks out as McCain did back in the day, Kennedy did back in the day, the Gang of Seven did back in their day, and most recently, as we saw, Senator Sinema and the Democrat and Republicans that Mm -hmm. tried to join that effort. So let's talk for a moment about the differences between the kinds of legislation we were talking about back then with the Gang of Eight in 2013. That I mean, that included a path to citizenship, (laughs) right, as opposed to what was on the table last week. Like it seems to have really shifted policy wives in terms of what's considered bipartisan. Yeah, I think the human migration crisis has uh, overwhelmed the system and the whole narrative now and a majority of narrative realizes, you know, you see these lines and lines of gobs of people moving across the border in Eagle Pass or in Lukeville here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the addressing the asylum issue has become the number one issue because the mobility of the of the population today is so much, imp- you know, people can move. I mean, people walk, you know, from Venezuela through the Central America all the way up here. They find ways to get here. Mm-hmm. The human spirit's going to find that. That's the thing that relates to the old immigration. You know, people are going to come. And our policy response to it has failed mm-hmm. because it doesn't understand that. And this most recent failure is a classic example of that, of they gave the Republicans everything they wanted, nearly everything they wanted, not the Trump bill, but addressed all these asylum issues up until, you know, you can close the border down. And it would have been closed down if we'd have passed this stuff. But they spit it out. Uh, Donald Trump leads the parade. He doesn't want to give Biden a victory on a campaign election year uh, where they're presumably going to be facing off against each other. And this would have seriously sucked some air out of the room in Mm -hmm. terms of the Republican MAGA narrative that, you know, uh, Biden's failing. And this is despite, you know, Trump, Trump's crew asking for legal changes as well. When they were in office, they said we needed to have the laws changed. And so it was there. And now it's not there anymore because they wanted to continue to politicize the issue as it happened in 07, as it happened in 13, everybody sees this through an emotional political lens and not an economic lens. There's a there's a political football line that always comes up with immigration. Yeah. I want to ask you about one last thing before I let you go, and it's SB 1070, which was, of course, the controversial mm-hmm. immigration law from 2010. You were a big part of that back in the day. And there's a new version, basically, of that going Texas. through the state legislature right now. Texas passed one very similar as well, SB 4 there. I wonder, when you look at the political landscape today that we just discussed and and, and what it was like back then when SB 1070 passed and the outrage that that meant. What do you think about the fact that it's being brought up again, these ideas again? Oh, my God. It's just maddening. <laughs> it's just crazy. Uh, everybody uniformly uh, pretty much forgets how popular 1070 was because the border had failed. They were putting up signs in uh, Pinal County saying this is a known smuggling corridor. Stay away. And it was a mess. And, you know, Russell Pierce was right that it was a complete policy failure on the part of the of the federal government to respond. We understood the political consequences of what he was doing because it represented a majority of the electorate's opinions that you had to do something Hmm. because, you know, power abhors a vacuum. 
you know, a vacuum. Somebody's going to fill that vacuum. You're somebody's hearing a lot of that today. You've, exactly. Something has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see in this cycle coming up if there's a price to pay for that. Hmm. I suspect, and this is a weird point of view because I'm here in Arizona, I suspect that that issue is no longer going to be as viable for Republican candidates anymore because now they own it. Hmm. They own the blame for it. And so how does how does the Republican leadership respond to that? Because I don't believe a majority of the electorate um, is going to respond in the way that the Republicans have characterized the bill. Because uh, Arizonans will say, give me something. Do something about this. Don't ignore the problem and don't play Lucy with the political football and pull it out from Charlie Brown because that's what happened. I mean, mm-hmm. and so it is a uh, here we are back again and we'll see how it transpires in this 24 election cycle. I'm very curious to see how the electorate reacts to the, you know, blame the other guy narrative because mm. I'm not sure that's a that's a narrative with a lot of traction anymore after what happened last week. All right. We'll leave it there. Chuck Coughlin, CEO of High Ground, joining us to talk about this. Chuck, thanks as always. Yeah, you bet. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. If you've ever thought about how you'd like to be remembered after you die, our next guest has an idea for you. Rosie Grant is an archivist and digital creator whose TikTok, Ghostly Archives, has gone viral for highlighting the recipes of the deceased, ones they've had etched on their gravestones. Not only does Grant find gravestones all over the country of people who have literally taken their recipes to the grave, she researches the lives of these people who have done this, makes the recipes, and often brings the finished dishes to their grave sites to enjoy together. I spoke with her more about it. Well, I was studying to be a librarian, and part of the program, I was interning at a cemetery in their digital archives. And so I was researching just different ways people chose to be memorialized. And that's how I heard about there was a woman named Naomi who has a spritz cookie recipe on her gravestone in New York. And when I learned more about her, it was there's a few news sites and blog posts about her on the Internet. And then, you know, continuing to Google search, I learned about several others and just kind of the rest is history. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about your own family's food history. Like, did this come up at any point in your research or learning about this idea? Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes down to family food history. Like, you know, we all have that one recipe that everyone knows, either your mom or grandparent or aunt or uncle made it for like every holiday or birthdays are associated with it. Like my own family has this yellow cake with chocolate icing Mm. that we had at every birthday party. And so a lot of these recipes, it was exactly that. They were First, they love the idea of like a took it to the grave, like they brought their recipe (laughs) and fully put it on their gravestone. But yeah, these were recipes that were really precious to the family that, you know, the grandkids or great grandkids now are still making them. Hmm. Um, There's just like a lot of like food tradition that was really wrapped up in these particular recipes. That's really cool. Okay, so you started this like in grad school, right? Like as a as a as a social media project. How did you sort of find the gravestones to feature? Yeah. So in the beginning, it was I basically we, it was exactly that. It was a, a grad class that was like how social media works. So we had to create a niche account and pick a topic. And so since I was at the cemetery, I was like, well, I'll make it about cemeteries. This was a new industry to me. Like I was kind of just like learning about how memorials work in the modern day cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as far as digital cemeteries, there's so much information online now. There are 
full blogs, Facebook groups, so many other social media accounts. There's other cemetery TikTokers and Instagrammers who do either preservation work or just history telling. And so a lot of the research is just already there on the internet. And a lot of it for me was just learning the stories of these people who have really interesting markers. Yeah. So tell us one or two of those stories. What are some of your favorites that you've done over the years? Oh, my goodness. I mean, of the gravestone recipes, there are so many just amazing characters. Like, there's a woman named Annabelle who's buried in California, and she has a snickerdoodle cookie recipe on her gravestone. It's a Mm. wonderful recipe. And her daughter had talked about, they basically, Annabelle was a uh, a volunteer firefighter with her husband. And they, um, like, she remembers being a kid and all of these volunteers coming into their house to fight forest fires in Northern California And she would just make food and feed everyone just to, like, get them, like, ready to go out and fight these forest fires and made these cookies included in that. It makes a million cookies. Um, So truly, like, feeding these people, going to, like, save their town. And then even later on in life and, you know, less exciting times, she would still make these cookies and share them with, like, the mailman or the handyman or anytime she had a visitor just because it made so many. Hmm, That's really great. What are some of your favorite cookie recipes or other recipes that you've that you've made? Like did they what are what are the ones that taste the best? (laughs) I mean objectively they're all really wonderful recipes. It's definitely a lot of desserts so it's mostly women and mostly desserts who decided to do this. For that particular reason I really love the very few savory ones. There's a woman named Deb Nelson who has a cheese dip recipe on her gravestone in Iowa And her daughter reached out recently, and I actually flew to go meet the daughter. We visited Deb and met several people in town. She was like a local radio host and like mini celebrity. Everyone had a Deb Nelson story. And this (laughs) cheese dip recipe in particular, it's so good. And she, she basically, she worked at this restaurant where her husband would come in as just like in the clientele, and he would always ask for this cheese dip, and she would serve it to him. And it was more meant to be like, oh, I'll get this waitress to come and chat with her. And they started dating afterwards and got married and had kids. And so it was just such an important (laughs) recipe to their family. That's awesome. That's awesome. So as part of this, like you make the recipes from these gravestones, but then you often like bring the finished product to the gravesites themselves and and enjoy them there sort of with, quote unquote, the people who put the, the recipes on their gravestones. Why do you do that? Why bring them back to the graves? Yeah, I mean, in the project, it really was very nonlinear. I mean, again, this kind of this started out as just like this random grad project that kind of keeps expanding on itself. But I was researching all these people and like reading their obituaries, and I started interviewing their families. And at one point, so for Naomi Odessa Miller Dawson, the first one that I had learned about, I was already visiting New York anyways, and I was like, well, while I'm there, I should pay my respects to her. Um, she's very easily accessible. She's in Greenwood Cemetery, which is this beautiful cemetery. And her gravestone is kind of like this like open cookbook. And I was like, well, you know, people bring flowers or coins or sometimes they'll place a a stone on top of someone's grave to say like, you know, I I visited you, I remembered you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why not bring their dish? And, you know, cookies travel very easily. So I did it for Naomi. And while I was there, Connie, another woman buried about an hour north of there, I was like, I should visit Connie too. So I did (laughs) the same thing. And then that kind of just got this whole thing started of just like, I'm spending all of this time learning about these people, cooking their food, if I have the ability to go and visit them, you know, cemeteries, the idea of this public memorial to someone in their memory. Mm-hmm. So I've of the 30 that I know about, I have visited seven so far. Okay. And some have been easier than others, like cookies <laughs> travel easily. Naomi was very easy to get to. 
some were a little bit more like, why? <laughs> well, <laughs> this, you know, probably wasn't what they intended when they made this recipe. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. OK, so talk a little bit about the reaction you've gotten to this account and to this project. Like as a whole, you have got it on TikTok and Instagram. Like and it's like millions of people have seen this now, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Um, I think the the biggest reaction that I've been like really like touched by is the number of people who have reached out with their own food stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking about food and legacy in your own personal family, you name the gamut of people just being like, oh my gosh, my family has this recipe. We make this every year. And like, you know, we're going to cook it more often and write it down. So we preserve our family recipe or you know, my mom made this or my dad made this, like, you know, they passed away two years ago. I still make it all the time. And it just, it brings them back to me and like their memory are closer with this dish. And so, yeah, like the importance of food with both like a family history, but then also when we're just like grieving and miss someone, food brings that person back in a way that like, obviously storytelling is so powerful, but like food is equally powerful. It brings all of your senses into the memory of that person. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We will leave it there. That is Rosie Grant, an archivist, a TikToker and digital creator. Her TikTok and Instagram are at Ghostly Archive. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. Happy Valentine's Day to you all, and happy birthday to our fine state of Arizona. It was 112 years ago today that President William Howard Taft signed Arizona into statehood on Valentine's Day. Very romantic of us. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Have a good one.